Good morning. It's a pretty uh, special weekend for a couple of reasons. One, we uh, celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow where we remember those that gave their lives for us in, in the military. Um, also a special day is for Jeremy. Pastor Jeremy is taking a sabbatical for the next three months. So um, we, uh, I'm not an elder officially, but we are taking the pulpit and, uh, and we're really excited to be able to share uh, the word of God with you throughout the summer. So um, let's be praying for uh, Amy and Jeremy as they uh, embark on his first sabbatical ever. So in fact, let's, uh, let, let's pray for them and then pray for help in the sermon. Father God, we, um, we give you praise and honor. Just your majesty is before us today. As we open your word, it proclaims itself to us that you're so kind, that you gave us Jesus to die for our sins, to give us all things that we're going to read about today. So Lord, we pray for Jeremy and for Amy. We pray that um, it would be a time of great rest, of restoration, of renewal. Lord, that you will do some amazing things, not only in their lives, in their families. Lord, we thank you for them, and we continue to lift them up throughout the summer. We give you praise and honor and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. So open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. The, uh, the title of this message is uh, Equipped to Echo. Equipped to Echo. Now, you remember the Wright brothers? Remember? Remember them a long time ago? Before Orville and Wilbur Wright had their first flight to Ki at Kitty Hawk, there was much skepticism about the possibility of flying, of flight. Here's some examples about the impossibility of flight. Simon Newcomb, he was an astronomer, professor at John Hopkins. He wrote in 1901, I dismiss the dream of flight as no more than a myth. And with such a machine device, he asked, what, what useful purpose would it serve? Wow. A British automotive engineer, William Beaumont, when asked on New Year's Day 1900 if man would fly in the next century, he said, this present generation will not fly. No practical engineer would devote himself to the problem now. Now, for those scientists out there, you know who Lord Calvin is. He invented the Calvin temperature scale. Um, his infamous quote in 1895, he said, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. And then he was asked to join the Royal Aeronautical Society in 1896. He said, I have not the smallest molecule of faith 
in aerial navigation, other than ballooning, or of expectation of good results from any trials we've heard of. Wow. But something happened on that wind-swept beach of dunes on, on Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. David McCullough, who wrote his book, The Wright Brothers, says this. I love the way he puts it. What had transpired that day in 1903, the stiff winds and cold in the Outer Banks, in less than two hours' time, was one of the turning points in history. The beginning of change for the world far greater than any of those present could possibly have imagined. With their homemade machine, Wilbur and Orville Wright had shown without a doubt that man could fly. And if the world did not yet know it, they did. When the Wright brothers learned the truth about the shape of airfoils and flights, once they experienced human flying, they could never go back. The truth changed everything, not just for them, the whole world. They could only move forward. Now, likewise, when we realize the truth, the, all the truth of our Father God, what he has done for us, and through Jesus Christ, it changes everything. We can never go back to ignorance or unbelief or to what the world was before we grasp this truth. The gospel changes everything. As we saw in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood of forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ and the gospel, we have obtained an inheritance. An inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of God. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So here's my main idea today. Since the gospel changes everything, we now walk in it, we echo it, to not only to those around us in GLC, but in every sphere we inhabit. So I want to look at three things in this passage. I want to look at our posture, which is in the gospel, knowing the gospel, the process of gospel echoing, and the ongoing propagation of the gospel. First, our posture, knowing the gospel, verses 1 to 7. Now, this isn't a direct quote from Jeremy, but here's what he has said in the past, I think. Indicative, the verb of being, must precede the imperative, the verb of doing. Who we are in Christ must inform how we live in Christ. Thus, the therefore in verse 1, right? And we all know the ask. What is the therefore, therefore? 
The Apostle Paul begins chapter 4 with a view of all that we've learned in chapters 1 and 3. What then is our response? I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is, your, this is our posture, to live out our calling of the implications of the gospel. What does it look like? What should our walk be in light of the gospel? Well, verses 2 and 3. You and I are called to walk in a manner worthy with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, Pastor Jeremy, so we don't forget him, I'll keep mentioning him, gave illustration of humility a few weeks ago, I don't remember when, but he referred to a quote from D.A. Carson. But Carson was recalling a conversation he had with Dr. Carl Henry, one of the preeminent theologians of the last half of the 20th century. Dr. Carson had asked Dr. Henry, how he had maintained his humility with his tremendous influence, intelligence, and theological acumen. Dr. Henry said this, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands next to the cross? How can anyone be arrogant when he stands next to the cross of Jesus the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. When we begin to understand the gospel promises and our position from Ephesians 1 to 3, he tells us to walk in humility. We have nothing to boast in ourselves but in Christ. Now, the characteristic of humility was primarily seen in the Greco-Roman culture as a sign of weakness. Wow, how similar is our culture to that of Rome in the first century. Humbleness is countercultural even today. And as we shine the light of Christ in our humility, it should be obvious, the gospel should be obvious to those around us, our co-workers, our neighbors. Then Paul adds gentleness. In 2 Corinthians, he sees this as a characteristic of Christ. And we all know, perhaps, that the fruit of the Spirit includes gentleness in Galatians 5.23. Now, in our Twitter world, right, contentiousness is promoted. We need to be gentle, meek, kind, considerate. Do you see that in Twitter? I don't. But we know from Proverbs 51, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And then I think it's part of speaking the truth in love. Patience, as one commentator writes, that's the third one, allowing for people's shortcomings in our relationships. 
within the body of Christ and those separate with whom we are sharing the gospel. The Apostle Paul experienced this patience personally from Jesus and now wants us to emulate it. In 1 Timothy 1.16, he says this, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as a foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to me as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, in my world, patience driving is an oxymoron, okay? When I'm driving, I value patience in people behind me, not in front of me. <laughs> it's so easy to lose patience, isn't it? As we interact with others, think about your own children, if you have children, and it's so easy to lose patience. But we want people to be patient about our shortcomings, but it's a little harder the other way around, isn't it? And patience is related to the next phrase, I think, bearing with one another in love. Do you know that there's, in the New Testament alone, the, there's 59 examples of one another's. Um, if you want to list, I give you a nice little handout after the sermon. But these one another show us how to echo the gospel to one another. And the preposition in love appears three times in our passage. It represents our posture from the love that God shows to us in Christ. Bearing with one another in love means we are not looking to our own interests, but in love, putting others first. That's what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now we are asked to do likewise. And this all leads to our last characteristic of a gospel posture. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In all our relationships in the body of Christ at GLC, we, need, we fight to maintain unity. Notice, we don't create unity. It's already there in the Holy, through the Holy Spirit. How do we know that this unity is already in place? Well, look at verses 4 to 6. Seven times Paul uses the word one. We are one. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. We are one. We are one because of who we are in Christ, our head. But we're not robots. Listen, listen to verse 7. We are unified in the body, and yet grace is apportioned to us individually as Jesus sees fit. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Within the body, there is a diversity of grace, gifts, and a diversity of gifts. As John Feinberg, one of my professors at, at um, Trinity, points out, grace, by definition, is not an obligation, but a gift. And Jesus is all wise to give us grace in just the right amount to allow the global church to be seen in its life. So that's our main idea. Since the gospel changes everything, we now walk in it and echo it not only to those at GLC, but in every sphere that we inhabit. That brings us to our second point, the process of gospel echoing, verses 8 and 12. I'm going to just read 11. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work in the ministry of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, we introduced this infographic, oh, a couple months ago now. We call it gospel reverberation, kind of taking the theme from Jonathan Lehman's uh, book called Reverberation. It shows the rhythms of discipleship at GLC. Verses 11 and 12 drive the process of gospel equity. If you don't have one of these, raise your hand. My lovely assistant, Isaiah, will hand you one out if you want one. You might want one from my sermon. So if you just raise your hand, he'll, he'll, he'll help you. Thank you. Jesus Christ loves his church. And when he ascended, he gave parting gifts, right? He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are the leaders of the church. In contrast to spiritual gifts, here Jesus gives leaders. As the early church was growing rapidly, God knew that with all the new believers, the church needed leaders to help the movement along. Christ gave gifts that were needed. The church needed apostles, sent ones, to go to uncharted areas and preach the gospel. They needed prophets who seek the word of God in all situations. Evangelists who couldn't slain the gospel of Jesus Christ to those living in darkness. Finally, the church needed shepherds and teachers to take care of this new movement of people called the church, making disciples, guiding them, teaching them to observe all that he had commanded. In this way, the gospel is proclaimed, echoed, and extended. What is the role of these leaders? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. This is the gospel echoed. Leaders at Gospel Life are not to do all the work in the ministry, but equip you, the saints, the people of GLC, for the work of the ministry. 
We echo the gospel to you so that you can echo the gospel to others. We equip you, prepare you by proclaiming the word of God to you, by discipling you in the ways of God, coming alongside all of you, shepherding you and teaching you. I am really thankful for the image of this verse that Richard Collection, uh, pastor and author of Ephesians for you. Since he's British, he uses the image of a football stadium. You know, we call that soccer, right? Only country in the world. The church is not 80,000 people watching 22 players on the pitch, right? You all don't come to Gospel Life to watch elders and deacons do all the work of the ministry. No, instead, you are the players on the field, on the pitch. We are player coaches equipping you to play the game. Notice that Paul writes the work of, the, of ministry, not ministries. There is one ministry. What is that? To proclaim, echo, and send the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have many roles, many positions, yet we are one team. Our goal of echoing is to build up the body of Christ. We're all teammates, all teammates. Now, I'm a huge NFL football fan, and me and Chelsea are Patriot fans. You'll, we'll, we'll use one of those examples. Um, there was something that happened around the draft, right? Tennessee Titans drafted a talented, young, unproven quarterback, Malik Willis, from Liberty. When the current Titans quarterback, Ryan Tannehill, was asked about mentoring Willis, he replied, we are competing against each other. I don't think it's my job to mentor him. Well, this got me thinking about the church, right? What healthy empowerment looks like. Rightly so, Tannehill's remarks, they're still echoing across Twitter um, about what a leader and what a teammate should be. A former NFL star, Rashawn Shady McCoy, poignantly tweeted in response, if you don't want to mentor, I get it, but don't call yourself a good teammate. If anything happens to you and he needs to replace you, let's pray that he is prepared. And the reason I mentioned the Patriots because when Matt Jones picked up on the idea this week, somebody asked him about that, and they drafted a young quarterback, Bailey Zapp. Matt Jones said, happy to have Bailey. He's a, he had a great college career. He brings a lot of knowledge. I'll help him and mentor him any way I can. And even Marcus Mariona uh, mentioned that he's going to mentor uh, the quarterback that they drafted. So Tannehill got the message. Actually, Tannehill just recanted this week. So great example. We are all teammates in one body, one team, fellow disciples and learners in Christ. Our team will thrive as the leaders Equip. That's the, that's the way it works out. We equip, then we echo, 
not only in hearing and understanding the gospel. So, how does the gospel echo play out in verses 12 through 16, or 12b through 16? What is unique in these verses is the focus shifts from the individual to the body as a whole. Now, I don't have a lot of time to spend in this section of the sermon on itself. But as believers being equipped, the gospel propagates how? Verse 12, for building up the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Verse 15, we as a group are to grow up in every way into him, Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There is more we could say, but remember, each part has a role and needs to work properly. I figured I'd continue with my soccer theme, okay? Football is anywhere else in the world. Have you ever watched five-year-olds play soccer? Okay? Kind of fun. They all follow the ball, right? They all follow the ball like bees in a swarm, right? And that's okay for five-year-olds, right? But imagine if you were watching yesterday's UEFA championship, Champions League, Liverpool versus Real Madrid, and saw 22 professionals running around, following the ball. Wouldn't that be, be crazy, right? It'd be chaos, right? And we would wonder if we were even watching professional soccer. Each player has a role and a position on the pitch. And what I learned yesterday there are players that have a role on the bench for maybe later in the game. Each player is equipped to be part of the team, and each is working properly. That's a championship team. You know, in verse 14, Paul says, don't be like children, right? Don't be tossed around as waves on the sea, right, by the wind every win the doctrine. But we focus on the goal. We, the body of Christ, are one team. Gospel Life United. Yeah, I kind of like that name. With Christ as the head of the team, and we are joined together by each of us doing our part, working properly to make the body grow so it builds itself up in love. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ. We have one ministry, the gospel. We have many parts, the body of Christ. We have many leaders who equip us. That is how the gospel is both echoed and extended beyond the walls of Liberty. So, the gospel proclaimed, echoed, Extended. These are the rhythms of discipleship. 
here at GLC. The gospel changes everything. And as we continue to understand, embrace, and walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we can never go back. It changes everything. Now, one of my childhood memories is sitting in my grandmother's living room, in my grandmother's living room, watching her black and white TV as Neil Armstrong took his first step on the moon. You probably recur, you probably know this. And he put his foot down, he said those famous words, that's one step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But what you don't know, that in his pocket, on that July 20th, 1969, as he stepped on the moon, he carried with him, in tribute to the Wright brothers, a small swatch of their very first airplane. Little piece of muslin to remember that it changed everything. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you're going to use us to echo to each other, to extend the gospel to those that do not yet know Jesus. Lord, help us today. Help us to know you and be in this body of Christ together.